before we launch in, could I get you to introduce yourself a little bit, tell our listeners who you are? Yes, Hadith Denizet Zakhaizet Skyzet. My name is Carla Tate. I belong to the the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. I am a member of the Gilzehu, or the Big Frog Clan, and I belong to the Dark House. Yatelkas. Uh, we're also known as Unastaten, or the people of the headwaters, um, given the location on our, our territory um, that we have inhabited since time immemorial, uh, being at the, the Witsinkwa, the headwaters of some of the major river systems that have provided for our nations um, since the beginning of time. So um, I am also the volunteer clinical director of services at the Unistaten Healing Center. Do you run the healing center at the Unistaten camp? Frida Houston, who is also uh, one of our Zakaize, our female hereditary chiefs, uh, she holds the, the chief name Halakat. She actually directs the, the programming overall at the Unistaten Healing Center. She's lived on our territory for the past 10 years and has been overseeing uh, the operations of our, our buildings there um, for the past five since they've been constructed. Um, I, I oversee the clinical programming um, aspects, so the mental health pieces of the programming, um, and I provide whatever support I can as part of my house responsibilities. Gotcha. And drawing on uh, my, my training in, in clinical psychology where it's helpful and where it actually supports our worldview and our ideologies as, as Wet'suwet'en people. Of course. And this is something that, uh, you know, our listeners, I think, uh, most of our listeners are in the U.S. And, um, you know, uh, we are guilty of, I think, like a lot of podcasts and media that are focused on everyday news and uh, politics. Uh, we've been very interested, we've been very invested in the uh, presidential election in the U.S. and sort of uh, domestic politics here. Um, but this is something that I just have seen uh, a lot more of my friends and family and uh, intimate circles uh, noticing is this conflict in um, so-called British Columbia uh, in the mm-hmm. Wet'suwet'en territory um, in a situation that sounds very familiar to, I think, people in the U.S., uh, who are familiar with the No Dapple movement, with the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the land defenders um, in the U.S. Um, who uh, went through something that uh, seems very similar from our perspective. Um, but this is, um, and I, I don't want to take too much of this time uh, for me to speak, I want to hear from you, but just to set the stage for uh, a lot of our listeners, I think that the media that I consume, I can only speak for myself, uh, often reduces uh, a conflict like this when it comes up to uh, these kind of eternal, unchanging forces that are coming into conflict. On the one side, this kind of unchanging, indigenous, uh, almost you know, instinctively reacting uh, force uh, that can only be understood in its reaction to the colonizer. And on the other side, this kind of eternal global capital uh, that rolls like a force downhill, uh, as if driven by gravity. But one thing that really fascinates me about this conflict um, in the Wet'suwet'en territory right now at the Unistaten camp is uh, just how organized uh, both sides are and how intentional uh, these coalitions are. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the history of the Unistaten camp um, and the uh, the camp's history in the Wet'suwet'en nation and territory? Sure. Uh, probably the best authority would be my aunt Frida for, for this kind of discussion, but I can share what I, uh, I'm familiar with. 
So I know that she reoccupied our territory 10 years ago. And that was in part in response to continued um, invasion and intrusion by industrial projects, um, folks that had not sought free prior informed consent for their activities on our unceded territories who were increasing their presence and, um, you know, not taking uh, no as, as our response. So I believe that's um, a big driver of, of, of what prompted her to return back to our territories and live full time. Um, the other driver was uh, the encouragement of um, my late grandfather, Wigadimshkol of uh, the Tsayu clan, who was uh, uh, one of the plaintiffs um, who spoke on the Delgamuk trial. Um, he actually was the longest standing elected uh, chief counselor in our, our reserve community, uh, Witsat, in addition to holding a hereditary chief name. And he was very clear on the distinction and the authorities that he had in his role as chief counselor elected and also his hereditary responsibilities. Um, but one of his pieces of advice that really um, resonated with Frida and prompted her to move was like from our reserve community out to our traditional territory was um, his recognition that in order for our rights to our land to be honored and respected, we needed to live on our lands. We needed to occupy our territories. Um, and that was pretty much the vehicle that the municipalities have used to um, uh, occupy and take the territories that were unceded across BC, um, the, the areas that make up Houston, the municipality of Houston, the municipality of Smithers, those were all unceded territories. So we need to occupy our lands and act like we own them because we do. Um, so that was a big driver for Frida's decision to move out there. Um, she started hosting uh, land-based um, protection camps or action camps where people would share nonviolent techniques and strategies to, to try to protect the environment and the land. Um, we had a number of supporters join uh, to support our cause at, at that point because of the shared interest and um, desire to prevent further climate change and catastrophe for future generation that that's shared by indigenous and non-indigenous people alike. And so she had um, a number of camps that she hosted even before the permanent structures were erected on our territory, the bunkhouse and the healing center, which respectively accommodate 20 uh, people and 16 beds in, in the healing facility. Um, and those were, you know, construction began on those structures about five years ago, um, all through volunteer, you know, fundraising and construction uh, labor. Um, they represent about a million dollars worth of investment. Um, they're, they're beautiful structures in a, a very beautiful, pristine location. And, you know, we're, we're just, um, we were empowered through some of the observations in her reoccupation of our territory. Um, she's she's experienced a lot of really good health benefits from being on the land and, and consuming food and, and medicine from the land, from consuming water that's untainted. Um, and she she spoke to that when I returned to school for um, like in pursuit of a, a mental health uh, degree or a, a relevant degree that would serve our communities, recognizing the absence of Indigenous people as mental health practitioners and knowing that we 
definitely need people who understand our experience to support us as we're addressing challenges like depression or suicidality. Uh, I mentioned um, before we started uh, recording, I think, that uh, I listened to you on the Red Nation podcast. Oh, and, um, right. Uh, you know, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you're saying on there that you were looking for um, indigenous uh, practitioners of mental health and you weren't able to find any coming out of uh, your uh, educational background. Is that right? Yes. In my undergrad, my, in my job, we were supposed to try to recruit indigenous uh, mental health providers and there just weren't any. So... <laughs> Um, that was part of the reason that I decided to go back to school, but then recognized this really amazing opportunity for our house group to host healing work, decolonized uh, healing from this colonial trauma on our own territory using our own uh, practices, right? Holistic land-based practices um, to really empower our people and reconnect us to the land. Um, and bring to life that vision of, you know, healing the people and healing the land that Frida talks about. So uh, this was a vision that was um, a long-term one that initiated well before Coastal Gas Link's interests on our territory and has so much promise for our community and other Indigenous uh, communities that would seek to, to send their members um, to get this kind of decolonized self-determined healing that, you know, we, we weren't relying on federal or provincial governments to, to fund these initiatives or to validate them. It was work that we had recognized was needed and, and we're planning to fashion and deliver in accordance with our own teachings and values. It is active self-determination. Absolutely. And it's, I think it's reconciliation in action. Um, when I think about the people who have put their labor and their time and sacrifice to to get us to this point you know it's been indigenous allies from other nations that have come to our our territory to assist in in any way possible it's been non-indigenous allies um coming and and assisting in any way possible for years on end um in some cases so it's been a really beautiful thing to witness this collective interest that's supporting um our intentions for once, right? Not a predetermined um, outcome or the values or priorities of Canada. This this is definitely Indigenous-led and supported by allies and um, who are, you know, lending some of their power so that we can reclaim some of ours. And so to get to uh, that solidarity and that action uh, uh, globally and particularly across Canada, um, can you talk a little bit about the political pressure, the economic pressure that these allies are uh, exercising uh, in this situation? Yes. Um, one thing that occurred to me um, after that interview on the Red Nation is, is that, you know, we were in ceremony the day that we were arrested and we were calling to our ancestors and the ancestors across Turtle Island who'd already demonstrated some solidarity efforts leading up to the arrests. Um, so we were calling out Didinye, which means rise up um, for our ancestors. And little did we know how widely that call would be heard. And um, I think it's a really humbling and beautiful thing to, to witness uh, this, I would say it's reconciliation and action, what's happening at the grassroots level, what's happening at these solidarity actions, you know, where people are are standing up 
um, with Indigenous people to finally voice that this this is not okay, the status quo where our our land rights, um, our human rights, our Indigenous rights are all, and even Canadian constitution, um, are trampled on in favor of uh, a company's interest and, and the profit for a small few that can jeopardize the integrity of our planet for all of our children. Already we're seeing the power of this kind of solidarity and this interest uh, from all over. Um, I just wanted to read from this uh, Guardian article. We're, we're also speaking in the middle of uh, all of this happening. This news is changing day to day. Um, I'm yes. speaking to you, Dr. Tate, um, on Thursday, uh, February 20th. And uh, just this morning, we received some interesting news. Um, I, I would love to get your take on that. But just for some yeah. context, um, it, our listeners might not know the full extent of these solidarity actions. Um, this is from this Guardian article. Uh, this is uh, Canada protests go mainstream as support for Wet'suwet'en pipeline fight widens uh, from Amber Bracken at the Unistatin camp. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there is this bit in here uh, just referencing these um, blockades and barricades uh, that have put economic pressure on the whole of Canada uh, right now. Uh, it says here, for more than a week, members of the uh, Tyendinaga Mohawk have blocked freight and commuter rail traffic in Ontario in support of the mm-hmm. Wet'suwet'en. Elsewhere, protesters have blocked roads, barricaded access to shipping ports, and occupied the offices of elected officials in a wave of dissent. Um, and it seems that uh, this pressure is starting to yield some results, uh, at least uh, it, it looks like it initially. Um, can you talk a little bit about the news this morning um, and what's actually happening on the ground? Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm cautious not to get too prematurely um, optimistic about how this pressure is going to um, impact, you know, federal and provincial leaders in, in Canada. Um, I do know there are strings attached to uh, this initial offer from the RCMP to withdraw from our traditional territories uh, back to the municipality of, of uh Houston to base their operations. Um, you know, I, I think given the the damage and rupture of trust um, in recent times, let alone the historic role of the RCMP in dispossessing our people from our lands um, since contact, it I think it remains to be seen. There's still RCMP patrols. They've they've stated that they still plan to patrol even after they withdraw their Kurg station from um, our Gidim Dan neighbors uh, territory. So, you know, I I think it's definitely movement in the right direction, but um, I don't think it's a time for anyone to let off any pressure um, until the RCMP unequivocally agree to, to vacate our territories to reduce their illegal patrolling and use of force and intimidation on our, our members and our participants and our, our guests um, until the Coastal GasLink project can remove themselves from our territories um, to allow for those nation-to-nation talks to actually occur in good faith. You know, and, and you can't do that while you're under duress, while damage is... is continuing on on your territory or violence is continuing against your people so um 
it's it's some movement which is positive but i think that there needs to be a lot more decisive action uh, by the provincial and and the federal government and a demonstration of of wukus or respect um, and, and a commitment to actually meet with our hereditary chiefs on Wet'suwet'en territory to discuss these matters. And uh, just some terminology clarification before we move on. So RCMP is Royal Canadian Mounted Police, right? That's correct. Uh, so these yes. are uh, what I had always heard of as Mounties, like the guys in the red coats from Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. Um, <laughs> yes. They don't seem to look so like that in these uh, they, pictures they, and videos. No, uh, the RCMP police force. Yes, that's that's who polices here in British Columbia. So they their outfits have changed a bit. Um, Seems like they switch to, to militarized fatigue gear when it suits them or yep. um, <laughs> nondescript and... neutral gear when, when that's more uh, visually, uh, when that suits their optics, I guess, or their intentions. And or just to give people to and just to give people uh, an idea of your experience with uh, these police in uh, the area. So you were arrested in the raid on, what was it, February 6th that recently happened? February 10th. February 10th, 10th. okay. Yes, um, it took them a number of days to advance to our 66-kilometer uh, mark, the Talbot Squaw territory we were on. That's right. In the so, territory. And, uh, yeah, so um, really, I mean, uh, it, it took me a little while to uh, figure out all the levels of just how things look on the ground. Um, what is it, Highway 16? that those kilometer yes. marks are measuring the distance from. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, I heard you refer to Highway 16 as the Highway of Tears. Um, can you speak sure. a little bit to the history of relations between the colonial government, the RCMP, and uh, the, the Wet'suwet'en Nation, indigenous people in general, um, and sure. what we're talking about when we're talking about the, the space relations here um, of a certain number of kilometers away from this uh, highway, the yeah. different camps. So we have um, historically had a, a very difficult and uh, conflict-ridden history with the RCMP here in Canada. Um, they were first uh, established to uh, remove our people from our territory uh, uh, with the introduction of the Indian Act. and since that time have been involved in the forcible removal of uh, children from, from their parents and the criminalization of parents who, who would resist um, to transport and um, bring them to the residential schools, which we know um, all kinds of violence and abuse and even deaths occurred at the hands of um, the people running those institutions. There's been this this difficult history of RCMP being the legal use of force by the the province or the the colonial state to um, remove us from our lands and uh, inflict some of the the cult, uh, the genocidal practices um, to erase us as a people. Um, you know, the residential schools were. Uh, initiated to, you know, uh, wipe out our culture from our children by removing children from their families and not allowing them to speak their language or know their histories. Um, the Indian Act also included laws that banned the, the Batla system, which is our traditional um, 
forum for go- governance. You know, all of our laws are enacted and, and laid out in our feast halls. And it was our system, uh, like a social system, an economy system, as well as a governance system. So that um, there was a, a ban on all potlatches that was, um, you know, seen or um, supported by our CMP efforts to like criminalize and arrest individuals found to be engaging in those practices and, and even burn regalia. Um, our CMP were often the force used when people were displaced from their territory, um, from their homesteads on different parts of our unceded territory and eventually moved to our reserve here in Wipset. Um, and in recent times, uh, there's been a huge uh, inquiry, the Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, that reveals um, the RCMP's role um, in allowing this kind of crisis to occur, where um, untold numbers um, of huge volumes far outnumbering uh, the instance of violence against non-Indigenous people in this country um, were shown to be uh, inflicted against Indigenous women and girls, and that no um, like inadequate efforts by the RCMP to investigate and seek justice for those families uh, were demonstrated, as well as even some um, conduct and um, roles by police themselves that allowed for the perpetuation of the violence directly. So we know from that inquiry, um, a lot of these spikes of violence against our women occur um, in concert with these industrial development projects. Um, and um, increase exponentially with the presence of these industrial man camps. Um, there's one such camp proposed for our own Unistaten territories, just 12 kilometers from our healing center, uh, which of course would compromise the safety greatly for our members and our, our clients that would access programming. Uh, so we've, we've often been um, receiving this differential um, of treatment and uh, outright violation of our rights at the hands of our CMP um, historically in Canada and even in, in current times. Um, the most recent example being the illegal exclusion zone that they um, erected on at the 27 kilometer mark on our territory under the guise of enforcing this injunction, which the BC Civil Liberties Council has uh, issued an, a complaint uh, with experiences um, of our members that uh, highlights some of the ways that the, the RCMP have violated their own law and taken liberties and overbroad application of this injunction to infringe on, on our human and Aboriginal and chartered rights. And so when we're talking about the kilometer marks away from Highway 16, uh, Unistaten is at what, kilometer 66? Um, Kilometer 66, yes. Um, and the Highway of Tears is dubbed that, Highway 16, because um, of the volume of uh, Aboriginal or Indigenous women and, and girls uh, or children who have gone missing along that highway corridor um, with no, no real uh, suspects identified or, or no, um, no one accountable for those actions. So we are um, in a very remote setting. We're um, a very pristine wilderness area that's accessible by logging road, the Morris Forest uh, 
service road. And yes, 66 kilometers from that point. And of course, Gidimdin territory is closer to that highway um, where they've established a permanent um, cabin and uh, the site for the raid last year occurred at the 44 kilometer mark. There were some new encampments this year, um, watch camps to observe with legal observers the, the conduct of the RCMP while they're on our territory. And also, um, I guess, warming or observation camps because of that exclusion zone, our own chiefs and members were denied access to our territory during that um, 30 some days we were under siege. And so they would go to um, the boundaries of that mutable exclusion zone to lend their support and, and bring supplies uh, that would then need to be walked in to our um, healing center village and also to the encampments. And I mean, I can't imagine how this feels to uh, hear the media and uh, the police and I mean, all of these actors uh, dividing up your territory kilometer, kilometer by kilometer this way. Um, it is just incredible the kind of focus that has been brought to bear onto this, uh, you know, relatively small uh, territory um, where, I, you know, I, I know we're reaching uh, the end of the time that you can spend with us, but I just want to give people uh, some consideration of the scale of the forces that are being brought to bear against you and uh, how incredible it is that you have resisted up until this point. This is the second raid in as many years. Uh, there was another raid, from what I understand, about a year ago. Um, it was yes. January 2019 uh, that the first uh militarized invasion happened and we've seen this with this raid as well which uh, as you pointed out began with this attack on not the main uh, the main camp if you can even call it the main camp it began on a watch camp that was filled with observers mm -hmm. um we don't have time to get into uh the myriad kind of abuses and um uh, harassment that the police have been doing against observers uh you know in addition to uh, the indigenous peoples on the territory. Um, but so again, to come back to this kind of scale, um, this is just from this article that I'm going to link to in the episode description that I think gives some kind of uh, global context to this as well. Um, uh, you know, I talked about at the beginning the kind of intentional coalitions on both sides of this conflict, and we've heard a little bit from you about um, that on the Wet'suwet'en nation side and on the land defenders side. Um, this is an article by Joyce Nelson in Counterpunch uh, from February 12th this year, Wall Street invading Wet'suwet'en territory, and I think it gives an idea of um, some of that coalition on the other side as well. Um, you mm -hmm. know, it begins with this kind of preamble about the situation as we understand it, um, and then gets into uh, these specifics. Uh, these actions were prompted by the RCMP's invasion of Wet'suwet'en territory starting on February 5th, uh, after which they began arresting indigenous members opposed to the 670 kilometers or 416 mile, $6.2 billion coastal gas link pipeline being constructed on their unceded territory in BC, that's British Columbia. Uh, the Wet'suwet'en have never signed a treaty, and in 1997, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that they hold aboriginal title to the land on which the pipeline is being built. This is the, um, uh, what is, uh, uh, Delgamuk, uh, case? Delgamuk. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Um, that your family was involved in. I mean, this is, uh, uh, mm -hmm. a, an incredible site of conflict between the settler colonial state and, um, indigenous peoples in Canada. 
Um, the coastal, this is back to the article, the coastal gas link pipeline will carry fracked natural gas from northeastern BC to Kitimat, BC, where a liquefied natural gas LNG terminal is being built by LNG Canada, a partnership of Shell, Petronas, PetroChina, Mitsubishi, and Korean Gas. Um, so you get it. Petronas is the only one that you can't immediately tell the nationality of. That's apparently the Malaysian uh, oil company. Um, but it says here, uh, while protesters have rightly condemned the RCMP actions, uh, they and the corporate media have often overlooked the role of a major player in this whole debacle. Wall Street titan Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts and Co., better known as KKR. And uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much time just reading into the mic here, uh, but this Wall Street uh, 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 firm, KKR, uh, this is a, a private equity firm, um, which is one of these leveraged buyout firms. Uh, most Americans might not be familiar with the name KKR, uh, but this is something that, I mean, has uh, gotten as far as our presidential politics. Um, it's a kind of famous case in the U.S. that uh, Bain Capital, another one of these private equity firms, bought out the uh, toy chain Toys R Us. Um, I don't know like how aware of this you are, but uh, they took this totally well-functioning company and stripped it for parts and fired everyone, uh, you know, laid off uh, huge amounts of people to the point where uh, by the time they sold Toys R Us, uh, you know, it had to go, uh, it, it had to be, um, uh, it, had, it was bankrupt. It couldn't continue functioning. Um, and KKR was actually the partner with Bain Capital in that operation. Uh, they are not invested in any kind of long-term uh, profits. Uh, they're all about the short term. And it is kind of this, um, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about uh, finance capital and how it affects whole, uh, not just uh, economic ecosystems, but, you know, the ecosystem it, it proper. Uh, and this, I think, is such a great, uh, I mean, great, a terrifying microcosm of that kind of logic of finance capital, of leveraged buyouts uh, being applied, uh, you know, on this relatively small scale, uh, but I think the whole world is watching for a really recognizable region, a reason, which is we understand that uh, this pipeline uh, is is symbolic and is actually, uh, you know, not just symbolic, it is the material enactment of uh, these earth-killing policies of resource extraction of the fossil fuel industry. Um, this is even worse because it, uh, it it's fracking. It will mostly involve methane being released into the air. Um, you know, this is, uh, uh, miles worse than, uh, just regular fossil fuel extraction, uh, in terms of the environmental damage. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, I, I link to this, uh, article, but just the way that, uh, Wall Street and global finance capital is bearing down on this situation, uh, is astounding. Um, and I think speaks mm -hmm. to, uh, the power that you all have built there that you can stand against it. Um, do you have anything, you know, uh, do you, do you have anything that you think about when you think about these forces, uh, that have this breadth, uh, that have such interest in you and have, uh, sent, I mean, these police have brought, uh, sniper rifles trained on indigenous uh, land defenders. They brought attack dogs and surveillance drones. Uh, you were recently arrested. Uh, what does that mean to you? <laughs> I know it's that's hard a... to, yeah. It's hard to really succinctly, um, I guess, answer that question. One of the things that I'm very mindful of that's that's driving our resistance to this particular project is is how fundamentally 
it um, violates our our values and our laws. And Wet'suwet'en law um, was developed and shaped over millennia to help our people be in relationship with the land that sustains us. It's why our chiefs cannot make um, single-handed decisions about their territory for impacts that are going to affect their neighbors downstream. Um, it's why all of our decisions are made collectively by house group members and the decision is, is ushered forth by our hereditary chief who is considered a spokesperson in, in our baslats and our governance system. So there is, at its core, we, um, we have a very collective system of, of law and, and we don't separate ourselves from the land in that system of law. Um, I think it's a pretty common sense and uh, widely recognizable reality that we cannot exist as human beings without the land that we depend on, without the water we depend on, without the clean air we depend on, without the plants and animals that sustain us. And somehow um, the law has for Canada and colonial states has been twisted in a way to put the interests of profit and company and extraction over fundamental human rights and our very survival. So it was very easy for us in that moment to know what the right thing to do was. It was, it's very easy for us to um, maintain our position and stand our ground in the face of all of this violence because we recognize that we are operating out of an ancient law that has underpinning values that are going to allow us to survive as a people and will even allow the survival of our neighbors um, and um, the non-Indigenous people that we're sharing this continent with, sharing this world with. Um, so it's I think you have to hold on to your, your values, your morals, your integrity through these kinds of abuses of power and pressures. And at the end of the day, I guess we're optimistic that humanity is going to come through for us. And, and we're seeing that in the solidarity efforts around the world and, you know, the power of dissent, especially when amplified by the masses is, is incredible. Um, uh, you know, I think it likens to some of the tenets within our law about uh, governance being by the people. Um, so, you know, I, I think we will continue to hold our position and not let a few um, individuals who are only interested in themselves and their profit in this moment to determine or rob our children of, of a future. Well, we send you all of our thanks, all of our solidarity, all of our support from Chicago, from everywhere. Um, if you have uh, just a minute, can you tell us uh, how people can support or um, how they can learn more about the situation as it develops? Sure. Um, I know the, the Gidimden checkpoint has a lot of great updates uh, on their territory and the developments there. Unistat and Camp 
and our, our website has a lot of great information. We both have social media presence that also provides any accurate, up-to-date information. We still have ongoing RCMP presence and intimidation on, on all of our unceded lands and, um, you know, continued pressure in whatever ways people can muster um, in terms of solidarity is is very much appreciated. There's a supporter toolkit on the website that helps you see some welcomed ways to help. Um, there's some organizing of the solidarity actions, um, you know, links on there for you to get involved with actions uh, locally and uh, put some pressure on all of these these giants. Perfect. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Carla Tate, for speaking with us, and uh, all power to you. Thank you. How it's that?